Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. We are continuing in our current sermon series called Who's Your One? If you have been here uh, the last several weeks or through most of the summer, you know that we have been looking at some amazing one-on-one conversations in God's Word where because of the faithfulness and obedience of one, someone's life is eternally changed. If this morning is your first time at New Beginnings, here's what this series is all about. It is all about acknowledging and accepting the call of God to personal evangelism. Acknowledging and accepting the call of God to personal uh, evangelism. Uh, We began in Matthew chapter 28. That's where we started this entire series where Jesus tells his disciples to go and make what? Okay, so here's the rules for if I'm going to be here, okay? Here's the rules. I'm just going to lay it out because we got to get it right or I got to go. Here's the rules. When when it's your turn, you go ahead and chime in and get in there with me. Jesus told his disciples in the last few words he ever spoke to them, he said, go and make what? Disciples of all nations. That was the command that he gave. So we started that series right there because that command was ours as well. And that is the heartbeat of this series, taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the lost world around us and pushing back the darkness with the light of life. Amen. And so we have seen God throughout this series use some very ordinary people to do some very extraordinary things. A few weeks ago, we looked at the life of Philip. And if you remember, Philip was called uh, to serve the tables as a deacon, but through a pattern of obedience and of passion for God's word and for the gospel, Philip becomes one of the greatest evangelists in all of scripture. As a matter of fact, God uses him to take the gospel to the continent of Africa. So it is It is one story after another of seeing God do these amazing things, and that's what I want God to do in me. It's what I want him to do in each one of us, to use a very ordinary man uh, like myself to do something of eternal significance for the kingdom. And so with this series, we've we've had this personal evangelism effort called Who's Your One?, and uh, this, this effort is going to call each one of us to identify one person who we will be willing to share our faith and invite them into a relationship with Jesus. So let me ask you, has God given you your one? If you have been here over the summer, you have heard us talk about who's your one. If you look on this wall, it is covered in the names of people who have said, I have my one. You've shared that with us. Your, your pastors and your staff, we have our one. We are praying over them. We are praying over these that you have given. Has God given you your one? If he has, then I am praying that God would open the door for a conversation and you would have the confidence and the boldness to step in and engage them with the gospel. If not, I am challenging you to jump in here and be a part of this with us and ask God to give you someone. Someone who you know is far from God, who you know needs the life-transforming power of the gospel and you would engage them with it. Our vision at New Beginnings is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your pastors and elders believe that God has called us to do this, that we have been called to be a body uh, to see a city transformed by the gospel. Amen. I love being a part of a church that, that, that pursues that, that wants to see the city transformed. But this is only going to happen. This is only going to happen through a people willing, ready, and inspired to be obedient to this call and command of Jesus. Listen, Jesus was always seeking the one. He was always seeking the one. Jesus was the shepherd who left the 99 to go and find the one. And so it is, it is following him, his command, his example, 
that we need to engage our one. So with that in mind, I want you to grab your Bible and go with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 9. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. As you're going there, we're going to be looking this morning at the uh, moment when Jesus called Matthew to come and follow him as a disciple. So that you'll kind of know where we are. Jesus has already um, begun his public ministry. He was tempted in the wilderness. He's preached the greatest message ever of the Sermon on the Mount. He has cleansed lepers, healed diseases, cast out unclean spirits, and calmed storms. And all the while that he's been doing this, he has been declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand, and he has been calling disciples to come and follow. And now we are going to see him calling Matthew. So in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9, let's read. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He said, go and learn what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, I am asking uh, that in the power of the name of Jesus and in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your word to us this morning, God? Our confession is that we need you. We need to hear your voice. We need to be in your presence, God. Your word says that the voice of the Lord is strong and powerful. It says that in your presence there is fullness of joy and freedom. And so, God, I pray that we would hear you and that you would draw near to us. So, Father, would you just illuminate your word, give us eyes to see it, give us ears to hear it. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here's this kind of unexpected an amazing encounter that Jesus has with Matthew and the Pharisees, but Matthew is the one. Matthew in this moment is Jesus' one that he is engaging, and, and we are going to see an eternal change in him. So the question for us is, what are we to take away from this moment? What is Jesus teaching us about the gospel, and what is he calling us to do? There are three primary takeaways I want you to have this morning from this encounter with Matthew. I know you're surprised that a Baptist preacher has three points, so everybody just calm down, okay? I was afraid if there were four, you wouldn't hang around, all right? And if there were two, we'd all be confused, so we went with three, all right? <laughs> three takeaways I want you to have this morning. Here's the first one. The gospel sees what others do not see. The gospel sees what others do not see. Look again there at verse 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Did you see that? It said, Jesus saw Matthew. Now, that's easy to miss, but there's a truth here, church, that we must apprehend. There is a truth here that needs to capture our attention and our heart. Jesus saw him right where he was, right in the middle of what he was doing. Jesus, in the power of the good news that he had come to proclaim, was able to see what others did not. Why is this important? Because Matthew, who if you read uh, the parallel, parallel accounts of this in Mark and in Luke, you'll see that he's also called Levi. So he has two names, Matthew and Levi. Matthew was a tax collector that Jesus called to be a disciple. Here's what that means. As a tax collector, he worked for Rome. He worked for Rome. This was a Jewish man who worked for Rome. Now, the Roman system of collecting taxes was ingenious and absolutely ripe for corruption. Here's what I mean. Uh, the, the Roman government would always select someone from among the people where they were collecting their taxes to be the one to collect the taxes. They believed that people would, would be more willing to pay without uh, incident or dissent if the person that they were paying their taxes to was someone from among their own people. That's pretty smart. 
But here's, here's, here's the crooked part. They didn't care how much the collector took in. All they cared about was that they got their prescribed amount of revenue. If they got their prescribed amount of revenue, they didn't care how much the tax collector took in. So here's what that means. It means that tax collectors were notoriously crooked, overcharging their own people in order to gain for themselves. And the more corrupt the tax collector became, the more alienated he became from his own people and the more beholden he became to Rome. This is where we find Matthew. The fact that Matthew worked for the Roman power made him a social pariah among his own people. He was an outcast. That's who he was. He was an outcast. And yet, it says Jesus saw him. Jesus had eyes for the lost, for the desperate, for the hurting, and for the lonely. Even those who hid it well, listen, which Matthew certainly would have. Matthew would have been a wealthy man. Matthew would have looked apart. He would have had on the nice robes. He probably would have been telling people what to do. He would have looked in charge. He looked the part, and yet Jesus didn't see the part. He saw the man. He saw the heart. He saw the need. And that is a pattern that we see in Jesus. Some of us play the part well, don't we? Man, we, boy, it got quiet when I said that. We, we know how to come to this place and uh, put on the smile and to greet brothers and sisters in Christ and to labor to paint a picture that is not true. Can I tell you this morning, Jesus sees right to the heart. <laughs> she's right to the heart. We see it. In, in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus saw right to the heart of Nicodemus. Right to the heart of Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, he saw right to the heart of the woman at the well. Do you remember that story? Time and time again, we see him going right to the heart of the Pharisees when they would try to trap him or trick him. He would see right to the heart. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus sees right to the heart of the rich young ruler. Do you remember that story? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life. And what does Jesus say? Keep all the commandments. Well, he gets excited. Oh man, I've done that. I'm really good at that. I've done that from my youth. And Jesus said, there's one thing that you lack, however, and that is to sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. It says he went away sad. Don't let it be lost on you that he invited the rich young ruler the same way he did Matthew and every disciple, the same way he did us. He said, come and follow. Jesus sees right to the heart of the matter. And this principle is not just a New Testament principle. It is a part of the character and nature of God. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16, you see where God has sent Samuel the prophet to the house of Jesse. You remember he told Jesse, he said, or he told Samuel, he said, I have selected for myself a king from among the sons of Jesse. Now go and I will show you who it is. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house and it says that one by one, the sons of Jesse would pass by. And the first one, kind of like myself, was tall, very handsome, had a luxurious head of hair and uh, he was passing by, and immediately Samuel goes, he must be the one. That, that must be the one right there. And the Lord says this to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the, on the height, height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is, this is the character and nature of God. And when we have been captured by the gospel, it positions us to see that same way, which is to see what others do not see. But can I tell you this morning, believer, you don't have to waste another moment trying to doll yourself up for Jesus. You do not have to waste another minute of your life trying to clean yourself up to make you more desirable to him. 
Because he sees you and he loves you right where you are. Jesus has eyes for the lost and to see what others do not see. So what is it then? What is it that Jesus saw in Matthew? And how how can it be that Jesus would, would look on this crooked, robbing tax collector and extend to him the gift of salvation? There were certainly better candidates probably standing right around there. Jewish men and women who were trying their best to keep the law, trying their best to honor God with their lives. Matthew's own people had rejected him. They worked to look past him and ignore him, to keep him at a distance. Did you know that because Matthew was a tax collector beholden to the power of Rome, his testimony would not even be allowed in a Jewish court? This is a Jewish man. It wouldn't be allowed in a Jewish court because he was considered a betrayer of his own people, and yet Jesus saw him. Because the gospel positions us to see what others do not see. You know, I was when I was in high school, I worked for a couple of weeks at an auto uh, repair place. People bring their cars in, you know, mechanic place. Now, I only worked there for a couple of weeks because after about two weeks, they were real sweet, and they invited me to go work somewhere else, and I thought that was kind of them to, to think of me that way, and so I went, and, uh, but for those two weeks, uh, they learned very quickly that I was costing them more than I was making them, and, um, then, and so they just helped me find a new place to work, but while I was there, I met a guy named uh, Frank, and Frank had this insane ability to pop the hood of a car and see the problem. He, he just had, he could see something. You know, when I raise the hood of a car, it just looks like the worst Rubik's Cube in history. I will never figure it out. And he had the ability to pop it up and see a problem. And I, I remember going to work one day, and he had dropped the engine out of this vehicle. And he had taken a milk jug, and he had cut the top half off of it. And he was sitting on the floor, and he was dismantling an engine. And he was just throwing into the milk jug screws and nuts and bolts and and springs and levers and gizmos and things that I don't know what they are or what they do. He's just tossing them into this milk jug. No order. He's not making notes like I would have to make and, and write myself a dissertation on where that came from and how to get it back there. None of that. They're just being tossed into a milk jug. And I'm having a bit of a panic over it. I'm like, this is never going to be put back together. And so he breaks this engine down, he gets to the part, whatever it was that he wanted to repair, and then he just starts doing it in reverse. Right out of the same milk jug, he starts putting the thing back together. And I was floored. But he had the ability to see something that I could not. Listen, that is what the gospel does. The gospel allows us to see what others do not. And in this moment, Jesus sees someone that everyone else looks past. He sees Matthew. Why does Jesus have eyes for Matthew in this moment? I think Jesus is trying to teach Matthew. I think he is trying to teach the Pharisees. He is trying to teach the disciples that are already with him. He is trying to teach us something critically important about the gospel, and that is this, that the gospel is propelled by mercy and not merit. It is propelled by mercy and not merit. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, that last verse that we read. Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees. He says, go and learn what this means. And then he's about to quote the Old Testament to them. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is referring them back to Hosea chapter 6. He's quoting their book to them where it says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. When you see this idea of steadfast love, it and mercy are interchangeable. They are words that share the same meaning and idea. There's a couple of things that I want you to see about the mercy of God that will transform, believer, it will transform your life if it captures you. The first one we find in Micah chapter 7, verse 18. In Micah chapter 7, verse 18, I want you to hear what God's word says. The prophet said, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever 
but he delights in steadfast love. He delights in showing mercy. It is the delight of God to be merciful to you. That's the first thing I want you to see, that our God delights in showing mercy. Here's the second thing. In James chapter 2, verse 13, God's word says this, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Oh, but listen to the next sentence. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I don't know who in the room needs to hear this, but I want you to hear me say, the Lord God loves you and he delights in showing you mercy and his mercy triumphs over judgment. How do I know that? How do I know that is true? Because in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, God's word says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end and they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Listen to me, believer. When you woke up this morning and your feet hit the floor, it was not God's wrath that was renewed for you. It was not God's anger that was renewed for you. It was not his frustration over your struggle that was renewed. What was renewed and made new for you today is his mercy. And it was given to you new. And tomorrow, it'll be given to you new again. What a glorious transaction that we get to have undeserved unmerited favor the lord delights in showing mercy and his mercy triumphs over judgment and his mercy is new for me every morning and the gospel is propelled by this mercy and not by merit so when Jesus looked at Matthew, he saw the nice robes, he saw the stack of money, he saw the man in charge, but none of that is why he called his name. He called his name because he saw his heart and he saw it through the eyes of mercy. Last verse on this and then we're going to move forward. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, God's word says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Man, if it stopped right there, we would be so hopeless. Verse 4, though, verse 4 ought to make you shout. But God, being rich in what? But God, being rich in what? Mercy. God being rich in mercy because of his, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Even when I looked the part but was a fraud, he still extended the gospel to me. Some of you have got to be weary of just working to look the part. He delights in showing mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. This place of being dead in our sin, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, living in our flesh, carrying out whatever our body and mind wanted, being children of wrath, that is where God found Matthew. But that is also where he found us. That is where he found me. So doesn't it make sense then that in that place of brokenness and sinfulness and rebellion and sickness is where he will find everyone who comes to faith. That's the same sick pool he snatches all of us out of. Which means what? It means that as believers in Jesus Christ, who are championing the gospel that is propelled by mercy and not merit, having eyes to see what others do not see, we cannot allow someone's current sinful condition to dictate our willingness to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. We cannot allow someone's current sinful condition. You ever get frustrated with lost people because they act lost? <laughs> right? 
I have been guilty of withholding. God, forgive me and forgive every one of us. I have been guilty of withholding and extending freely the love of God with someone because I couldn't get past their sin and their rebellion. What that displayed in my heart in that moment was an absolute tragic misunderstanding of the gospel. I don't want to miss it. I want to be captured by it. I don't ever want to let someone's current condition dictate whether or not I will shout Jesus and extend to them the love of God. I read a quote this week uh, by a theologian, and I looked to try to figure out who said it, but I couldn't find him, but it said this, since Jesus' mission is predicated upon mercy and not merit, listen to this, no one is despicable enough by the standards of society to be outside his concern and invitation. Man, think about that. Because this gospel is propelled by mercy and not merit, no one is despicable enough. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, that that is true for me. The gospel is built on mercy, and it lets us see what others do not see. Here's the next thing I want you to see. The gospel goes where others will not go. It goes where others will not go. Look at verse 10 of Matthew chapter 9. It says, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. If we look in the parallel account of this in Luke chapter 5, verse 29, Luke writes this, And Levi, remember Levi and Matthew are the same person, And Levi made him a great feast in the house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Why is this important to note that Jesus went to Matthew's house, that he, that he sat at his table, that he ate his food with other tax collectors? Because Jesus was compelled to go where others would not go. He was compelled to go where others would not go. Listen, believer, the gospel is always going to be compelling us in Jesus Christ to go where others will not. Remember what I said about Matthew a few moments ago. He was a social pariah, right? He was an outcast, uh, unwanted, unwelcome. The Jewish people looked on him as a betrayer of his own people and one deserving of expulsion. The Pharisees had already passed judgment on him, and yet Jesus is reclining at his table. This is significant. When you, in the Jewish culture, when, culture, when you entered someone's home, and you shared a meal with them, it was sharing an identity with them. It was showing a connection. There was a, there was a declared bond with that person. So Jesus enters into the house of Matthew, and he makes a declaration, not only of his connection to Matthew, but a clear declaration of his kingdom purpose, which is to seek and save sinners. Listen, and how could he have saved? How could he save if he was unwilling to draw near? Church, if we're going to see a gospel work in our city, then we must be willing to go where others will not go and draw near where others push away. So can I just ask you just very quickly, as I've kind of talked about this idea of going where others will not go, who are the people that because it's awkward or because they're different that you push away? We all got them. Who are the people that you push away, that you keep at arm's length because it's just too hard to overcome the difference between me and them? Socially, there's just this disconnect. Financially, you know, it's, it's different because their sin issues or their struggles or their addiction, whatever it is, it just, I'm keeping this thing at arm's length. The gospel that is radically redeemed you and I should cause us to go where others will not. I want to see what no one else can see. I want to go where no one else will go because the gospel is glorious and I want to see it transform people's 
lives. And this is what we see from Jesus. He went to the woman at the well. He went and touched the man with leprosy. He went to the boy with an unclean spirit. He went to the house of Zacchaeus. He went to the tax booth of Matthew. He went to Jerusalem, knowing what it would mean. He went to the garden and he went to the cross. Why? Because the gospel will go where no one else will. The gospel goes where others will not. But for us to do this, for us to see what others do not see, for us to go where others will not go, I think there have to be two things we recognize in our own life. I think there's two things we have to recognize. Here's the first one. We must recognize our own spiritual poverty. We must recognize our own spiritual poverty. What do I mean by that? As believers in Jesus Christ, we, we ought to be living in a recognition that we are spiritually poor, that our condition, apart from Christ, is one of hopeless spiritual bankruptcy. That's who I am apart from Jesus. Hopeless and spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. And there's nothing I can do to fix it. What does Romans 3.23 say? Some of us struggle with sin, and maybe a few of us will fall short of the glory of, right? That's, listen, y'all, hopefully y'all know better than that, or I'm going to tattletale to Pastor Todd so fast. All of us, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means no one is immune to this disease of sin sickness. We understand that when Jesus was talking about the sick in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 that we just read, he was talking about us. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I'm not the well. I'm the sick. I'm the one who needs the doctor. And in, in Matthew chapter 5, we see Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. You remember I told you a little earlier, it was the greatest sermon ever preached. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, with the people gathered there on the hillside and some of his disciples that he, have called, that he has called uh, around him, here's what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow. By the way, that was the first of the Beatitudes. It's the first thing he said. This greatest sermon, the longest sermon, and what are the first words out of his mouth? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that? He means blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty because they are perfectly positioned to receive the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, to those who are sick and know it, to those who are poor and recognize it, to those who sense the desperate need for something deeper and stronger and more satisfying, to those who recognize their spiritual poverty. He says the kingdom belongs to such as these. You know, I think about David, uh, who was the king. He had no financial needs. He was doing okay. He was doing all right. He was a king. Um, he, he had it all. Monetarily, it, he, he was doing great. There weren't bill collectors calling his house. They didn't have his number. They couldn't figure it out, right? There was never too much month at the end of the money at David's house. Never happened, not once. And yet, David says in Psalm 34, he said, this poor man, he's describing himself. He said, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So taste and see that the Lord is good. He said, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him. David knew his true condition. The gospel is for the spiritually poor. It is for those who recognize that apart from Christ, we are bankrupt. It is for the sick. And the only thing that qualifies me to be a follower of Jesus is that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. That's the qualifier, right there. There is no merit that I have of my own that qualifies me to follow, only that I am a sinner and he is the Savior. And the only, there are only two categories of people in this world. All of us are sick. There's those who have found the doctor and those who haven't. That's it. 
we have to recognize our own spiritual poverty. And as we do that, it helps us to to do the second recognition, which is to recognize their greatest need. When we recognize our own spiritual poverty, it positions us to look past the exterior, to, to look past the sinful behavior, to look past their struggles and past their rebellion and to see them the way we should see ourselves, poor sinners in need of a Savior. You know, when you were a kid and you would argue with your brother and sister, I've heard that kids do that. It doesn't happen in my house, but I have heard of such things, that a brother or sister will call you a name. And you remember there were always two great comebacks, two great comebacks. The first one was, I know you are, but what am I? Remember that? Classic. Carrie loves it when I use that one. I use it all the time. It's an argument stopper. Uh, the other was this. Takes one to know one. Remember that one? Takes one to know one. <laughs> you know, when you didn't know what else to say, you had to have something. And that's what, that's what you had. But you know what positions me to see sinners in need of a Savior? is I am one. That's, that's what I am. It takes one to see one and to be willing to go where others will not go. You want to know what positions me to see someone who is sick with sin and in desperate need of grace? Because I am one. And this is, this is all around us. There was a pastor uh, back in the 18th century. His name was Joseph Hart. And he wrote an amazing hymn called Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. Anyone ever heard of this hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy? The title's a real pick-me-up. I know. It's, uh, you just get fired up when you're like, oh, yeah, it's my workout music. It's my jam in the morning. You know what I mean? And so <laughs> he wrote this amazing hymn, and I want you to hear some of the lyrics. It says, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. Weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity and love and power. Come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Listen, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. So I will arise and go to Jesus. And he will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. There is someone in this room who has believed the lie that says, I will come to Jesus when I'm better. I will get it right with God when I get some stuff worked out, when I get it right in myself. I've got some things I've got to work on. Let me tell you this. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Because sin only moves one direction. Rebellion only moves one direction. And apart from the transforming power of Jesus Christ, we will never get better. But in Him, you can be restored. Jesus Christ, it is in Him where we find the medicine. It is in Him where we find the the healing. It is in Him where our deepest and greatest need is satisfied. And in believing the lie that we can manage our sin, we sit in the isolating darkness of lostness. We sit isolated. Believer, do not tarry until you're better. Lost person, do not tarry until you're better. But come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Amen? This is the invitation we shout. Come, ye sinners. Jesus ready stands to save you. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. The gospel sees what others do not see. The gospel goes where others will not go. Here's the last thing. The gospel gives what nothing else can give. It gives what nothing else can give. What is that? It is a life-transforming, sin-forgiving, 
all-satisfying relationship with God Almighty. It is what each one of us who are in Christ have experienced, and in experiencing it, it should compel us to see it experienced by others. We see this transformation begin to take place immediately in the life of Matthew. It happens immediately. Look back at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, the very first verse we read. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed. He rose immediately. No hesitation. Why? Because Jesus had transformed his life. Listen to how Luke describes it. So I told you there was a a parallel account of this calling in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. Listen to this. It says, and after this... He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And leaving everything. Did you see that? He left everything. When Jesus saw him, he was at his tax booth. Listen, it was certainly covered with with tax documents and receipts and scales and plenty of money. I imagine there being people standing all around. And yet when Jesus called him, the Bible says he left everything and followed him. He left his job. He left his livelihood. He left that table full of money. He left his former life. I believe the moment that Matthew stood up from that table, he was saved. Here's why I believe that. Because from that moment until the end of his days, he follows Christ. He's not perfect, but he's never the same from that moment until the end of his days. You know, often people, just in conversation and in, and in counseling, there's times when people struggle to try to look back on their, on their journey and find the moment that Jesus changed their life. Oh, we can talk a lot about being raised in church and mama was a believer and, you know, vacation Bible school and I prayed this prayer. And those, none of those are bad things. As a matter of fact, they're all amazing things. But what, what I try to get them to find for me and the way I will ask the question is, tell me about the moment when you recognized you were a sinner, that you needed a Savior, and you met Jesus. And from that moment to this moment, you've not been perfect, but you've never been the same. Tell me about that. Why would I want to know about that? Because when Jesus enters, everything changes. So I want to know about the moment Jesus changed your life. So let me ask you, has there been that moment in your life where you've recognized your need for a Savior, that you were a sinner far from God, and you needed a Savior, and you met Jesus, and from that moment to this moment, you've not been perfect, but you've never been the same. If you can't say, I've had that moment, then, then in a little bit, we're going we're gonna to worship and respond. I want you to come take one of our ministers by the hand, and they will, they will help you do that. Today can be the day of salvation. You don't have to leave the way you walked in. If that has happened for you, if you can honestly say, yes, Pastor Matt, there has been this moment where I recognized I needed a Savior, and it was Jesus, and he saved me, and I have not been perfect, but I have never been the same. Then in that same moment here in just a little bit, when we respond, your head ought to tilt back in a glorious shout of praise and recognition that Jesus saw in you what no one else could see, and he went to you when no one else would, and the gospel gave you what nothing else could give. That ought to ignite a fire in us. How can such a transformation take place in the life of someone like Matthew, this crooked, robbing, selfish, betraying tax collector? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ gives what nothing else can give. It is an an all-satisfying feast. It is a feast that immediately begins to wage war on the sinful nature that is ruled over us to put sin out of flavor in our lives. I, I don't particularly have an issue with this, but I heard of people who like junk food. I've heard of you guys, and uh, y'all got to get it right. Listen, that's terrible. Um, what does junk food do? Well, it tastes good for a second, right? 
But what happens? It's just, it's just a, a little bit. And what? You're hungry. Your body is longing for something else. Why? Because what you ate was never meant to satisfy. It wasn't meant to satisfy. Your body's longing for something with, with more nutrition, something that's more sustaining. Sin is the same way. Sin is, sin is like junk food. It tells you every time that if you, will, if you will eat me, if you will do this, if you will, this will be the time I will satisfy. And it never is. If you will do it just this one more time, this will be the time that you feel satisfied and fulfilled. And it never is. Listen, those of you who are trying to manage your sin, believing that the next time will be the time it satisfies. It never will. Why? I heard a pastor say years ago, because sin will always take you further than you want to go. And it will keep you longer than you want to stay. That's what sin does. And all of a sudden, believing that lie over and over and over again, you find yourself somewhere you would have never dreamed you would have been. But it is the gospel that can give you what nothing else can give. The gospel of Jesus Christ satisfied. It is why when David said in Psalm 34, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. One verse later he says, so taste and see that the Lord is good. Because it is the gospel who satisfies. It is the gospel that gives us life and that more abundantly. It is the gospel that can make us content in any circumstances. So right now, where you are, have you been transformed by the gospel? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Last verse. It's in Romans chapter 6, verse 15. Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through 23. God's word says this. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Paul says, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. In verse 19, he goes on to say, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, which that's what sin does, it is sin leads to more sin. It only moves one direction. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification because that is what the gospel does. It leads to holiness, to righteousness, to satisfaction. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting from that time, from the things of which you are now ashamed, for the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And its end, bless the Lord, is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the transformation. That, that's it right there. That is what the gospel does. It moves us from slave to free, from sinner to sanctified, and from death to eternal life. Church, the gospel gives what nothing else can give. And all around us, all around you, there are men and women, family, relatives, friends, neighbors, co-workers who need the transforming power of the gospel. And if we have received it, then there ought to be a holy fire burning in us to see it received in someone else. I recognize that personal evangelism can be awkward. I get it. It is. It can be hard. It can be hard. But when I look back on why it has been difficult for me or awkward for me, 
I've come to realize because I have made it about me. It's, It's hard for me to do when I make it about myself. What do I mean? I mean, I, I worry if, that if I share this gospel, it's going to hurt my friendship with someone. That's, that's a me issue. I worry it's going to make it awkward around them. It's going to get awkward at the office. It's going to get awkward in the classroom. It's just, it's going to be weird. This is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to harm the relationship. But if you look at this encounter that Jesus had with Matthew, just in those first few verses, here's what we see. It was Jesus that passed by where Matthew was. It was Jesus that saw him at the tax booth. It was Jesus who called him to come and follow. It was Jesus who broke through every social norm and went to his house. It was Jesus that saw the hearts of the Pharisees. It was Jesus that declared what the kingdom of God was all about. Never forget this. We have a message, and it is not about us. It is about one person, and that is Jesus Christ. What is, what is God calling you to do today? How is, he, how is he calling you to respond? As I've talked about seeing what others do not see and going where others do not go and giving the gospel that gives what nothing else can give and, and, and recognizing it as a gospel built on mercy and not merit and, and that as I understand this gospel and recognize my own spiritual poverty, it helps me to see the greatest needs in others, which is that same all-satisfying gospel. Would it be your confession this morning that you need to come and hit this altar and beg God to forgive you? Because like me, You have withheld the good news of Jesus because someone just didn't fit the mold because you couldn't get past the outward struggle. Would that be your confession? Would it be your confession this morning that you have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good? I want you to come and take one of us by the hand and let us help you take that step. Maybe this morning you just need to pray for your one. Maybe your confession would be, I haven't given a second thought to whether or not God would put someone on my heart to share the gospel with. I'm asking, I am begging you to do that. I am begging you to do that. Come and pray that God would give you your one. So whether it's salvation, whether it is repentance, whether it is uh, just, just asking for the courage to follow in obedience, whatever it is, I'm asking as we stand and as we sing that you would respond. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And I'm so very grateful, Father, for the power in your word. God, your word is is strong. It is true. God, there is not uh, one area of my life where it, through you and through the power of the Holy Spirit, does not give me everything that I need to walk in godliness. And so, Father, I know that your word has done its work today. So I'm praying, God, that you would give us courage to step up and step out and to come and take someone by the hand, whether that is confession, salvation, whatever that is. We love you. Lord, thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for the mercy that is new every morning. Thank you for loving us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.